tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, <laughs> here we are again. Fun with fun with Greek and Hebrew, or or as uh, <laughs> the father Father Branken calls it, uh, the the Catholic Talmud hour. But no, it's it. No, let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit; they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan, all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I, I was listening to the Patrick Madrid show today, and I, I noticed that, that he has a different idea than I do. Uh, somebody uh, I called in and talked about the Last Judgment, and I, I firmly believe that uh, scripture says we shall know as um, we are known, and the the last judgment is is uh, a, a time when or a moment when all things come to light. Whereas Patrick believes that if we've confessed our sins, that those won't get broadcast, and he may be right. That I mention this because this is an important idea, not not whether the, the judgment is not not the nature of the judgment i don't know the nature of the judgment this is just what i'm thinking from what i've read and patrick is saying something different from what he's read well what does the catholic church teach precious little about most things there are i mean somehow people look at the church and say i want an exact answer as to the color of socks i should wear on thursday and that's not that's not going to happen we live by faith and not by sight scripture says and uh, you know the, the 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 Catholic Church. I don't believe teaches this. Theologians might have an idea. Uh, they may be right. They may be wrong. It was rather a shock to people the other day, the Feast of Saint Thomas Aquinas, to find out that uh, he didn't believe that that life began at conception. Well, he was wrong. Saint Thomas Aquinas was wrong. Yes, about that he was. I think uh, the uh, or, or or he didn't believe in the Immaculate Conception. And I think he was definitely wrong. And if the church had defined it as a doctrine, he would have said he was wrong. Are you getting my point that there's a lot of things that we just have to leave to the Lord? We can speculate about them. And personally, I suspect that, that Patrick is a better speculator than I am. He's very well informed. And uh, me, ah, Greek verbs, Hebrew nouns, I'm okay. But beyond that, meh. So uh, I would, I would uh, pay more attention to what Patrick says. But... Um, you see, the point is that we can get all, oh, bejeebered. That's a very technical term. We can get all bejeebered about about these fine points. And it always amazes me how people who should be 
and kind and loving are furious at each other. Even all the 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 uh, uh, I'm, I haven't even started the scriptures and I'm off the topic. But um, the the um, story of Gulliver and Lilliput, the the Lilliputians and the Brobdenagians. I think it was Brobdenagians were at war over which end of the egg it was proper to break, the smaller or the larger end, when you were eating soft-boiled eggs. That sounds so silly, but we go to war about pretty much things not much greater. But it's important to me. Well, good, I'm glad. you got to understand that, that Jesus once said to when Martha was, was all upset about Mary, uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and he said, tell my sister to help me. And he said, she's taking the good part. And that's what it says in the text, the good part. It won't be taken from her. And, uh, you know, we I think most people sympathize with Martha. But um, uh, she was all upset with her sister not doing the housework on this great occasion. Well, Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, few things are required. Some texts say few things, some things are, say only one thing is required. Well, which is it? Few things or one thing? I don't know. <laughs> but I would say it's both. So you got to learn to live with with faith. And, and that's what we're going to be talking about today eventually. But right now, let us open the big book on the coffee table. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, let's see here. This is the feast of the of the presentation, and uh, this is uh, celebrating in Jewish law. It's celebrating two things. Uh, I think the one is called in Hebrew is Pidyon Haben, which means the buying back the son. And we read in the book of Exodus that every firstborn, be it of a man or animal. Uh, must be uh, bought back from the Lord in lieu of sacrifice, in lieu of human sacrifice. So, uh, every firstborn belongs to the Lord. So, you you went and you paid a price for your firstborn son. Uh, there were all sorts of kind of permutations. The Levites had a different obligation, and they already belonged to the Lord. It gets confusing. But normal, everyday Jewish person had to pay a certain price. In fact is, um, to this day, Orthodox Jews, some Orthodox Jews, when they their first son is born, they will find someone whose last name is Cohen or Coplin or Cogan, who is um, uh, thought to be a descendant of Aaron, and they'll give them 10 bucks. They're paying the price of the firstborn. And uh, uh, there's an actual ceremony in, in certain segments of Judaism for this. So that actually still does go on. Um, this is one of the things being celebrated. And the other is very upsetting to modern women, the purification of the uh, of the woman after childbirth. It is very interesting that the purification happens 40 days after birth. The buying back of the firstborn cannot happen before the 30th day. So... It seems like they combined the uh, the events, and uh, there was no. You wanted to do it promptly to buy back the firstborn, but you couldn't do it until the thirtieth day, and a woman couldn't be purified after until the fortieth day. And it's very interesting because um, uh, uh, 
the, you'd, you'd think that, that the purification uh, was a statement about the uncleanness of the woman. And it wasn't. You have to understand that when we, when we read unclean, we think dirty. That's not what uncleanness is. Uncleanness is, is something dangerous. If something is unclean, they can't fulfill their religious duties. Um, but it isn't, it isn't, it, this has nothing to do with what we think of as hygiene. Uh, there are, I, you know, I should have, uh, actually I looked it up on my other computer, which is in another room, which I'm not going to go get now. But, um, the, the 40 days of uncleanness, uh, actually gave a woman a vacation. <laughs> have you ever thought of it this way? She did not have to perform her religious duties. She did not have to, uh, 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 jump at the beck and call of husband, that sort of thing. Um, so it was actually a time of of rest. And I remember when I was a kid, we still did it. Uh, women were churched. I think in, in more traditional circles, it is still practiced. And the idea was that y you were absolved of your religious duties for 40 days. And that gave you time to bond with your child. So it was not... It was not uh, uh, what we would think of now as somehow this is unhygienic. But the, the idea of blood being sacred, thus it is unclean, is a very important biblical idea. Blood belongs to the Lord. And so there's an uncleanness about it. It, 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 uh, it in, the, in the birth process, there is a lot of blood involved, most usually. And this, this was a, a matter of great awe and, and, uh, and respect. So uh, when we look at it from our standards, well, women are clean after childbirth, that's the nerve of those chauvinists. That's not what's going on at all. It's much more about the sacredness of life, the sanctity of women, and, well, frankly, uh, uh, much, a much-needed time of rest for, for a woman. All right, so that's interesting. Well, I want to move on here just to the next passage because it says something very odd. Um, it talks about Jesus, the high priest, uh, who uh, is a faithful high priest before God to expiate the sins of the people because he himself was tested through what he suffered. This is a very interesting idea, which is repeated in, in the letter of the Hebrew son, though he was, he learned obedience uh, through what he suffered. That's also in, uh, I think that's in the fourth chapter of the same letter. But this this idea of 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 testing through suffering this is interesting. Um, first of all, it's the word for temptation or or testing. Same word in Greek, peradzin. Uh, um, the the um, why would God test Jesus? Well, why would God test you or me? The purpose of temptation testing, same word in Greek, is to manifest what is within me. In other words, I may think I am the best thing since sliced bread. I'm holy and pious and I'm a wonderful saint and everybody knows this. And then I get in a situation where it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, where I got trouble. And, um, uh, it's interesting how I react. You know, someone pushes the wrong button and I go ballistic. 
Well, I thought I was so good and holy. You know, you think you're good and holy. Oh, I never would do that person in the back pew there in the church. It's just, I cannot believe what, what I'm hearing about them. Well, careful. <laughs> God might put you in his situation. You see, you might think you're wonderfully holy. And if you don't say, Lord, examine me and point out my unknown sin. If you're not, if you're not, as we've been talking about with David, a man after God's own heart, uh, God is, has a way to show you that you're not all that, nor are you a side of fries, as the saying goes, that, that um, God allows us to be put in a situation where we realize who we are, that we might repent of it. You know, I was thinking, I was reading about, uh, I was reading the news today. I should stop that. It's ridiculous. There's nothing new under the sun, and I think that's true. But I'm looking at the news, and it's half of it is all these people virtue virtue signaling. You know, that, um, you know, you tear down uh, some... some uh, um, uh, mayor says, yes, we have to take down the statue of this guy because, well, he, he used to spit in the street. That's just wrong. We're taking down the statue. You know, the whole cancel culture. And it's so funny when a corporation or a government or a, a government official decides to join the cancel culture. Why are they doing that? Oh, because they deeply believe. I, I think it was uh, somebody who was all upset about uh, the the way that the the... Native Americans were treated by the, the church uh, and, and the Spanish conquerors, and it was reprehensible. But now we try to say, oh, we just, that's terrible. Well, yeah, it happened. It was terrible, and it's our fault, and we move on. You know, I, I remember dear Rabbi Lefkowitz, may he rest in peace. Uh, it was de rigueur for German students visiting this country to, uh, to go to a synagogue, and... Uh, Rabbi Lefkowitz would welcome them, and the kids would be crying and just grieving. And he'd say, what? This is, you didn't do this. Your parents didn't do this. Maybe your grandparents did this. This isn't your fault. But, oh, they were just so, so, so virtuous in their guilt. You know, the it occurred to me that, that um, virtue signaling, which is, trying to be more repentant than repentant uh, is necessary. Virtue signaling is the opposite of confession. Virtue signaling is the opposite of confession. Confession is, I did this, it was wrong, I'm sorry. Virtue signaling is, oh, I never, oh, I couldn't, oh, this is what a terrible thing. You see the difference? One is trying to cover up or to make oneself look virtuous. That's what Saul did, and he lost the crown. David confessed his sins and was a man after God's own heart, as we've been saying. So this idea of testing, God tests us to show us what's in our heart that we might repent. Well, that doesn't answer why would why would he allow Jesus to be tested? Because there were, were people who needed to know Jesus, what was in Jesus' heart. And I think one of them was the devil. You see, Jesus, Jesus uh, in the fullness of his humanity needed to be absolutely dependent on his heavenly father. But also, uh, I think that the, the, the constant questioning by the devil might have been, who is this person? Who is this person? Well, so Jesus was tempted, not so that he might know 
what his sins were because he had none, but that the world and the devil and the flesh might know what his virtues were. So I, I think that's very intriguing, the idea of temptation. That temptation, even temptation, has a purpose. God allows temptation that we might repent. And most of us, when we see something that we need repenting for, we, we virtue signal and protest that, oh, we would never do such a thing. Instead of saying, yep, did it, and I'm ashamed, and I'm repentant, help me, Lord. Totally different attitude. I just a thought on the idiocy of virtue signaling. God wants us to be virtuous, as I always say. The devil wants us to feel virtuous, and there's often quite a difference. All right, let us go to a break. Uh, I, I want to uh, speed up a little because we have, uh, 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 come on, brain. We have, uh, um, I want to do a little bit more extended word of the day, and I do have a few letters to read. So you can call in. We'll open the phones at 888 914 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com. Well, here we are celebrating Candlemas Day and my computer <laughs> with the letters has just turned off. Uh, this is, of course, the feast on which the high priest offered a groundhog. To, I'm, no, that's I'm kidding. <laughs> it is actually Groundhog Day. I, Candlemas Day. I, this is my theory. I may be wrong about it. <laughs> I haven't researched it well. But Candlemas Day is very important in European culture. It's the day in which uh, the, the, there's more light in the day than dark, more sunlight than darkness. And it is, it is, we're kind of through this, through the mess. And so, um, uh, it's, it's an important day. Um, but then uh, Protestantism suppressed those kinds of feasts, but somehow Candlemas Day wouldn't go away. So it got transmogrified, I think, into Groundhog Day. So, um, that's my theory. But that's just a theory that I, I've tried to research and they haven't been able to. So let us go to letters. And speaking of the importance of it, I got a letter from um, somebody, where did it go, uh, asking about uh, why uh, the Mexicans dress up um, uh, statues of Jesus on... Um, uh, on, on Candlemas Day, and really, um, the that's kind of um, common in many cultures. I know the Filipinos have a wonderful, wonderful, lovely custom of of uh, the of the Santo Nino, which is right about now. Um, Oh, the, yeah, this letter is from Teresa. Please explain the Mexican tradition of dressing the baby Jesus on the day of the presentation. It's kind of a Spanish thing. And uh, it spread to the Philippines uh, for the Feast of the Santo Nino. Uh, and um, the Filipinos have the, the most quaint custom of dressing images of the Christ child in 
the, the clothes that they would wear to work. For instance, uh, if you're in the medical profession, <laughs> the baby Jesus is dressed in in uh, what are they uh, what are they call hospital sweats or what what are those called? I don't know, but. Um, the the uh if you're if you're a a contractor or a carpenter you might dress the baby jesus in in working men's overalls it's a lovely custom and the spanish did it too uh throughout the world in different different manifestations so it came to mexico what is the big this is i'm going to sort of segue off into this what is the big deal about honoring the baby jesus jesus grew up didn't he and why do we honor the baby jesus i think that devotion to the christ child is a very beautiful and important thing because you see it reminds us that 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 the innocence of a child is is an important biblical idea and it reminds us that Christ is put into our keeping just as surely as he was put into the keeping of our Blessed Mother and St. Joseph, and that Jesus is always the Son of God. So this is a dimension of the Messiah that, that, that we celebrate in the Feast of the Presentation. What do we read? The one whom you seek will suddenly appear in his temple? That, that he appeared as uh, uh, a child, and and that's what we're celebrating when we honor the Christ child. So devotion to, to the Christ child, I, I really do think, is not inappropriate at all. Um, we want kind of a, a grown-up Jesus. Well, we get a grown-up Jesus, we get the Christ child, we get Christ on the cross, we get the risen, the risen Lord. So devotion to the Christ child is, is a devotion to, to a dimension of, of our life as Christians in that Christ is placed into our hands for safekeeping. And I think that's a beautiful idea. So uh, at any rate, so that, just a thought about, about that. Why do they do that? The Spanish custom that spread all over the place and um, is a beautiful custom that, well, I think perhaps it wouldn't be a bad thing were it to come back. All right. Um, this is from Elizabeth. I would ask... Uh, uh, um, if you knew someone so incredibly stupid as to believe in the existence of good and bad, well, somebody like that's talking to you. When I was young and you heard venial sin, you didn't have to go to confession and Monsignor wouldn't be that upset with you. Mortal sin, good Lord. And only the Lord knows what, what, what uh, Monsignor would have, would have done. Monsignor O'Brien would have probably come out of the confessional and dragged you out like Padre Pio. So um, this idea of good and bad sins, I think a lot of people really do think of of venial sins as okay sins, and there's no such thing as an okay sin. Venial sin will not send us to hell, but it makes us more accustomed to sin, and it sort of sets us up for bigger temptations from the devil. So there's no such thing as a good sin. But but uh, Elizabeth, I I have known people, <laughs> and was one in my youth who thought, nah, venial sin, not so bad. Hmm. All right, let's see here. All right. This is a letter from Laura in Raleigh, and she's asking about highlighting her Bible. My Protestant friends highlight and write in their Bibles. I thought this was sacrilegious, as our family Bible on the coffee table was held in such high esteem. Don't mark up the one on the coffee table, but get yourself one that you can mark up. There's nothing wrong about highlighting your Bible. Uh, remember, the Word of God is Jesus. These are the scriptures, and uh, um, we've been highlighting them uh, since they were written uh, and, and making notes on them. So uh, 
No, there's. I, I really don't believe there's anything you know, uh, wrong with it. Now, however, can I write it on a separate page? Sure, you can. If if you're still hinky about about uh, marking your Bible or highlighting it or underlining it, um, you can do it on a separate page. And the voice of mine just said, "Get multiple Bibles." I remember uh, um, uh, my favorite theologian, the Reverend Billy Bob, who said, uh, "If your Bible's too good to mark up, throw it out and get one that isn't too good to mark up." Uh, that's a good suggestion. Uh, the thing is not the printed, the page is we treat it with honor, but, but, um, marking it up is not treating it with dishonor. It's, it's trying to squeeze every last drop of, of wonderful Bible truth out of it. And I, I, I don't think it's at all wrong. So there, this is from Maureen. Um, let's see here. Can you please give some insight into Jesus words? Those outside, everything comes in parables, so that they may look and see, but not perceive, and hear and listen, but not understand, nor that they may be not may not be converted and be forgiven. Jesus is quoting. Oh dear, I should look that up. But Jesus is quoting uh, the book of Isaiah, I believe. I think that's Isaiah, in which Isaiah is stating a fact: this this people's heart has grown coarse. And uh, Jesus is not saying that he speaks them in parables in order to harden their hearts, but to invite more simple people into the mystery of the kingdom, the secrets of the kingdom, by means of parables. So he's not saying, I don't want them to hear. I do want them to hear. Uh, Isaiah spoke the truth. I'm, I'm hoping I'm right that that was Isaiah. I'll have to look it up. But uh, I'll look it up in the break. But no, Jesus is not intending to hide the truth from them. Also, um, uh, um, Let's see. I thought, yeah, Jesus is is most certainly not trying to hide the truth from people or, or hide these secrets of the kingdom. He's trying to explain them in a way that they can understand. Let me do one more letter here. Um, this is from Eva. Oh, it's very interesting. Um, um, you often quote one of your favorite smart cookies. This is Dr. Brant Pitrie. Uh, to the effect that your excellence Theophilus is one of the sons of Annas, who had filed a lawsuit against Paul. Now I'm sliding through the Gospel of Luke, and I don't see that. Well, no, you'd have to look outside the scriptures for that. Uh, look up Annas, the sons of Annas, look up Theophilus, the high priest, and you'll see it there. Um, now, it's my, I've added to it, that, that I wouldn't be at all surprised if he was high priest when Saul was delegated to go take care of the situation in Damascus. That's just a supposition, a possibility for me. But uh, the, the uh, let, let's, uh, let, me, let me look this up. I should have looked this up. Where's the right keyboard? Sometimes I, I tap away at a keyboard and nothing happens on the computer. That's because I'm tapping on the keyboard. Um, um, <laughs> uh, for the wrong computer. But let me see. Luke 1, 4. Let me look this up. Because the word is very interesting. So, it says, the usual translation, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, or in which you have been instructed. However, uh, um, the, the, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It can mean, um, um, the word kata, uh, the word is, is katecheo, uh, it, it really means, um, that you have been, uh, kata means exactly, that you may, might have exactly uh, the things in which, uh, 
Oh, let me let me look at this. Hold on. So that you may know concerning the things that you have have exactly uh, the the certainty of of the testimony. The word here is logos. That the word logos here can mean law. Uh, a, a law case. Uh, logos is one of the most flexible words in Greek, I think. It, it's got hundreds of meanings, but one of them is law case. And the thing that indicates to people like Dr. Petrie that, that this was a legal document uh, was that um, the word autoptai, eyewitnesses, and the hyperetes, Logu, hyperetis, it doesn't mean, when we read ministers of the word, we think of someone who is a clergyman, but it isn't diakonos, which would be the usual word for someone working in the church, it's hyperetis, uh, and that means a steward, in other words, the assistant of the law case. So there's a really good reason to uh, um, think that this is... is um, a legal document, and one of the things that that in today's gospel reading, it's it's rather, rather disturbing uh, that that we read in the gospel that that uh, at the very end of the gospel, um, when they'd fulfilled all the prescriptions of the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong. I thought they went to Egypt. Well, they did. It's just that Luke doesn't mention it. Why wouldn't Luke mention it? He said, after a while, they went back to Nazareth. If Luke is trying to talk to Theophilus about how Jesus and Paul are not the problem, he's not going to mention an unfortunate incident in which Jesus had to flee from this Herod's father, uh, from the current king's father. He's not going to try to have a document that the Romans might see that said that Jesus, even in his being born, had fallen afoul of Roman law. So if you if you think of the Gospels as written for purposes of evangelism, well, they're completely contradictory. If you think of them as written for purposes other than evangelism, though they are very powerfully evangelistic, but by their human authors, they were written, I suspect, for certain situations in the church. And I really do believe that Luke and Acts were written to uh, to have them call off the lawsuit against Paul. However, you're not going to mention Jesus and Paul being in trouble with the law uh, that early on. So, you know, a person in a court case picks and chooses which of the facts they want to highlight. They're not lying. They're just not, as my blessed mother, not my, she was blessed, my sainted mother, she would say, Richard, you must never lie, but you don't have to tell everyone everything at once. But speaking of that, we're going to take a break. We'll come back with with our extended Word of the Day segment um, on, on um, the vocabulary of First uh, Corinthians 13. Well, one of the things I want to talk about in, in the, in the, is moving mountains, not climbing them. 
888-914-9149, and let's go to the word of the day. I am doing an extended word study, uh, picking apart 1 Corinthians 13, word by word. And yesterday I talked about love, which, as you know, I maintain is a specific kind of love. It's agape, with about 10 exceptions in the New Testament and no exceptions in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's a, a rather rare word. Uh, which originally, to the best of my knowledge, and I've worked on this a long time, refers to a kind of love that is innocent. It would be the love of an adult for an infant, that kind of thing. It's kind of, you're just interested in the well-being of that infant. So it's it's came to be disinterested charity, which sounds awful, but it love that hopes for no return or sacrificial love is what it came to mean in Christian parlance. So I maintain that you can almost take the word love out of the New Testament, put in the word sacrifice, almost. But it's a specific kind of sacrificial love. And what we read yesterday was that um, if if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have sacrificial love, I have become a sounding brass, whatever that is. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that is, but a, 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 a clanging cymbal, that's, that's much easier to understand. Kimbalon means cymbal, just as we would mean cymbal. But the word for clanging is alaladzon, which means making, uh, 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 just making noise, alaladzon. You know, that, that you may be a fine preacher, <laughs> uh, but if you don't have sacrificial love, uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so uh, <laughs> those of us in the business of preaching should understand that. And then it goes on in the second verse to say, if I have prophecy. It's interesting that one has prophecy. Uh, so um, that, that uh, and I've explained a great deal what I believe prophecy really means. It, it means being able to see uh, beyond the veil of, of what we think of as, as reality. Now, somehow I have lost the, 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 ah, there we are. And if I understand the, the secrets, all the secrets, and, and the word really is, they say understand, but it's, it's the word know. Um, if I know all the secrets, the word is Edo, uh, and then it goes on. Now, I've, I've explained that I was wrong about the root of mystery, but not in wrong about its translation. It means secrets. Uh, the, if I if I understand all mysteries, well, the word really is. If I know all, the word is no I, I, Edo. If I know the mysteries, um, all the mysteries, and all the knowledge. This is an interesting word, gnosis. Uh, we get the the. Um, it's kind of an experiential knowledge. Uh, uh, that that um, the, there was a whole group of people in, in the church called the Gnostics who really believe you were saved by correct theology. That's as close as I can come to understanding uh, Gnosticism. But it's that's what if I if I if I if I know if I have all theology if I know rather all theology. Now this one is interesting, and if I have all the trust. Pistis it means faith. They're translating it faith, but I'm always telling you, you can translate this just as well as trust. And you know, I 
it's embarrassing after 70-some years, I finally understood something. Uh, I'm a little slow sometimes, but remember the dear nuns who used to say, offer it up? <laughs> I always wondered what that meant, to offer it up. <sighs> you know, when bad things happen to me, and I say, Jesus, I trust in you, my accepting of difficult things, things I do not want, things that may be physically, emotionally, psychologically painful. I'm saying, Jesus, I'm offering this up to you. In other words, I'm trusting you in this. It's a salvific act of trust. When Jesus says, go your way, your faith has saved you, saying your trust has saved you. And when bad things happen, and the dear nuns said, oh, offer it up, she is saying, make this an act of faith to the Lord. So I think that's what it means when I say, oh, I'm offering this up. In other words, just as Jesus uh, offered up his sufferings on the cross, saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, so too when I face difficulties and I say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, that's that's offering it up. And then he goes on, if you have trust enough to move mountains but don't have sacrificial love if i if i if i if i understand these things but i don't have sacrificial love i have nothing i am nothing if I, or if i have not love i am nothing um this idea of moving mountains um i've seen people actually stand and try to move a tree there was a, a rabbinic phrase about moving mountains you know that he had was wise enough to move a mountain to solve a great problem is to move a mountain. I don't know that Jesus wanted us literally to go around moving mountains. I've never moved one except, well, I've, when the weight is up, it's kind of moving a mountain. But I digress. So, you know, that, that to move a mountain, if I have trust enough to move a mountain, well, but I, I don't have sacrificial love, and I'm just doing this for me, uh, I'm nothing. So, understand uh, the, the these ideas and um it's gonna I, i'm gonna have more fun with this because i do think it's an important chapter of scripture that if god is love we should certainly understand what love is because um i think a lot of people myself included need work on this all right let's go to phone calls buddy deal what's your favorite color no, 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 no. It's Groundhog Day. I mean, Candelaria. Who have we got? <laughs> Heather from Oregon. Are you with us, Heather? What can I do for you? Yes. Um, so, Father, I have a question about Ad Orientum and the germ. Yes. The general instruction of the Roman Missal. Yes, yes, yes. So, I fully understand all the theology and love the beautiful theology and think that it's far more theologically correct to be autorantum. Um, or at least it's, it's far more um, explanatory to the people, to the, the laity um, of what's going on. But in the germ, when it's giving the instruction for how the church ought to be set up, it says that there ought to be a standing altar so that Mass can be celebrated facing the people. And I just wanted to know how you explain that in terms of ad orientum, like how do we, how are we obedient sons and daughters of the church? And also, ad or, like, how does that match up? How does that line up? 
Well, if you read it in Latin, it's a little different than in English, and it doesn't say that what the what the general instruction of the Roman Missal seems to say that any new altars. You know, as I recall from when I was but a lad and we did this, it wasn't expected that if you had an altar that was built in and facing the wall that you had to move that out. However, any new altars should be made so that they, you can walk around them. And the idea was that the the mass could be celebrated in either either posture. Now, this is 60, 70 years ago. And again, as I always say, we obey our bishop because that's pleasing to God. But you kind of, you kind of forced my hand here because I, I, I you know, uh, this was going to be the grand finale to this word of the day thing I'm doing. Sacrifice. The big, big deal about, you know, and I, I, I don't hesitate the word to use the word liturgical crisis. We are in a liturgical crisis. Uh, and it isn't because we're saying mass ad orientum or not saying mass ad orientum. It's that we don't understand. And I, I really mean this. We don't understand as a people the nature of the sacrifice of the mass. That the mass is the, in a sense, the incarnation of, of God. It most certainly is because it's the blessed sacrament. But this, this incarnating the God who is sacrificial love. It's all about, well, I like this, I like that, I, li I want this, I want that. And on both sides of the argument, we are doing Mass as theater. And I, I mean that. I don't think that, that uh, so many... Uh, you know, thinking about this, I almost think that it doesn't really matter which direction I say Mass in. I should just get rid of the microphone. As a celebrant of Mass... Uh, you know, since I've retired, I, I say mass without a microphone. I know, very small, quiet, private, usually uh, just a, a simple celebration of the Eucharist. And I'm really praying. It's very, very hard for the priest to pray at mass. At least it was for me. Because you hear your voice through the microphone. You're worried, is them, are they hearing in the cheap seats? You know, that it wasn't sacrificial. It was theatrical. And I've had priests get very angry with me when I when I mention that, but it really is. And so often, um, I think I shared this with 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 all of you that I was once at a very beautiful uh, mass, a Tridentine mass, in, in a Tridentine rite parish, and uh, it was Mozart's Requiem. Well, everybody got up and left after the, or half the people left because they were there for the Mozart after after the Sanctus, and it's among true Mozart aficionados. It you'd never listen to any any of the Mozart Requiem uh, after the Sanctus because he didn't write it. So it's it's almost a duty to leave. Wait, wait, wait. We haven't had the consecration yet, and the Lord God's going to be here. They weren't interested in God. They were interested in Mozart. And then at the end of the Mass, uh. uh the priest, for whom I had great respect, um, uh, clad in in gorgeous vestments and a beretta, stood in the san in the sanctuary before the final blessing and dismissal, and was given the giant novelty check by the benevolent society that had paid for the orchestra. And I thought, this is most uh, <laughs> this is most certainly entertainment, just as much as any any. Novus Ordo uh, Mass. So we're not going to get better. 
this isn't gonna this isn't gonna get fixed until we the clergy and following us we the people really understand that mass is a sacrifice it is the incarnation of sacrificial love and I go to mass to kneel and worship before God sacrificially uh, you know we don't prepare for mass we we don't you know the general instruction of the Roman Missal you mentioned it says you should be silent before mass in time of preparation after mass it doesn't talk about that it doesn't doesn't insist on it but it does insist on silence before mass preparation for mass we on both sides of the argument are arguing from I think our personal preferences uh, and and not from an enhancement of the sacrificial nature of the Mass. And I think we need to think about that. How do we remember that the Mass is a sacrifice? Uh, so I don't know if that comments on your, your statement. So how do you as a faithful per, uh, believer do this? First of all, you obey your bishop, especially if it's sacrificial to do mm -hmm. so. You obey your bishop yeah. and, and you prepare for Mass, whether it is ad orientum, novus ordo, uh, Tridentine, Byzantine, one of the many forms of the of the liturgy. Prepare for it. Make sure that you are offering yourself with Christ on the cross for the salvation of the world. Does that help a little? Yeah. So it's it's not contrary. My main my main concern is it's oh. not <laughs> in opposition to the church, like the church's actual rubrics. To have the mass celebrated at Orientum. No, I no. If you especially okay. if you look at it in Latin, it, it certainly does say that uh, that that okay. uh, so that either can be done. At least that's as I read Latin, and I'll, I taught it for twenty five years and studied it for ten more. I'll go read the Latin. So I'll go read the Latin yeah, and not yeah. just the English then. So, yeah, thank I'll, you so I'll much, Father. But, but, but I really again, I remind, you're welcome, but I do remind people that, that if a bishop in your diocese has said something, that's part of the sacrifice. You obey the bishop. All right. Uh, who have we got now, dear voice in my head? She, she, she punched a button there, didn't she? Oh, well. <laughs> Grace from Wimberley, what can I do for you? Throw me a softball, Grace. Throw me a softball. <laughs> Hello, Father. Thank you for uh, taking my call. Um, ah, I felicidades am... en la candelaria. <laughs> yes. I, yes. Yes. Did you do the tamale thing? Do you do the tamale uh, thing? You know, we usually do, but this year I didn't get tamales. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, let me, let me, let me tell, let me, let, let, hold, hold on for a minute, Grace. Let me tell people that, that on the feast, I think, now correct me if I'm wrong, on the feast of the three kings, you have a, a, a yes. sort of cake and into it is baked a little plastic image of the Christ child. And whoever chops into the Christ child has to buy tamales on the, on Candlemas Day for everybody for the, in the Candelaria. It's a great custom. We used to do it when I was in a Spanish parish. Okay, Grace, now you can ask your question. Yeah, thank you. But it is, it is true. And, um, so I live now here in, in Texas in Wimberley. Um, actually been here for many years, and I mm -hmm. tried to follow some of my traditions. One of them was is that uh, I we end Christmas today, like we used to do at my home, mm -hmm. um, yes. 40 days after Christmas. But now I'm in a place where I'm really searching more for meaning. Why 40 days? Why, you know, mm -hmm. first of all, why we did it in Mexico and 
and uh, but now I'm much deeper in my faith. So my question is, okay, so yes. the Holy Family, uh, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, um, for is according to this scripture that we read today, three days after they took Jesus to the temple for the purification of the Blessed Mother, uh, Luke doesn't say anything about the flee to Egypt. But Matthew no, no, no. Doesn't, doesn't talk about Says they went in Egypt. Yes. Yeah, I explained. I explained why why Luke didn't mention it. He was he was trying to defend the ministry of Jesus, and he wasn't going to mention that Jesus was in trouble with the law on the day he was born. So that's why. But are you asking about the timeline? When did these things happen? You know, the, 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 estás preguntando de, de la, del progreso. ¿Qué pasó primero? ¿Qué pasó después? You know, if, sí, is that sí, your question? Me interesa, yeah, yes, but also there's a little bit more than that. Oh, all right. So I went, you know, I always imagine, I'm not always, I mean, especially this. Grace, you, you're cutting in and out. Are you on a speakerphone? I'm having a hard time hearing you. Oh, no, okay, dear, let it's me, not a good connection. Uh, probably because, I'm, you know what, I'm moving my phone, so let me see. Oh. Can you hear me well now? That's better, yes. Okay, I'm sorry. So, okay, so I imagine what happened uh, after Christmas for the Holy Family. What happened mm -hmm. during this, if, if it is indeed 40 days, um, mm -hmm. I imagine, yeah. you know, because this is the last day that we hear about baby Jesus. After today, mm -hmm. yes, you know, we start pretty much, we're very close to um, Lent. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm trying to put my place, you sure. know, well, where the Grace, Holy Family were. First of all, yes. Ancient ancient uh, historians didn't think of history the same way that we do. They were more interested in meaning. And so the idea that the Magi came, we always picture them coming on Christmas Day or, or on a few, a few days after. Uh, the scriptures don't say that. And I do think the Magi came, but it, it would have been after the presentation. So I would, I would think if we're looking for a timeline, Jesus is born. He is circumcised, uh, not in the temple, because you don't have to be circumcised in the temple. Then there's the presentation, and then the visit of the Magi, and then the flight into Egypt. That would be reasonable to think that's the succession. But the reason that the different texts of Scripture mention different things and different appear to have different timelines is because they're being written for different purposes and to explain different things. Um, if the Gospel of Luke is a legal document, they're not going to mention Jesus escaping into Egypt. Uh, if if it's about the fulfillment of prophecy, which Matthew seems to be, they will mention the fact that 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 Jesus was revealed to the world because that's a very prophetic thing. And speaking of prophetic things, Drew is coming up. Uh, and well, <laughs> can you get more prophetic? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> 